What is the name of Satan? Lots of different names there. Some of those that you said were titles. Let's start with the word Satan. Is Satan Satan's name? So what does the word Satan mean? Well, it's very interesting. The word Satan, if you read the word, so the Hebrew word is Satan or Satan, and every time it appears in the original Hebrew, it always has the word the in front of it. Now, Hebrew works very similar to the English language in that if you have someone's name, you can't put the word the in front of it. So I can't say the Barry. That doesn't make sense. Barry's just Barry. He's not the Barry. Uh, If he were, he'd be the only Barry to ever exist. So we just call him Barry. And so Satan, Satan is the same. Satan has the word the in front of it. So Satan can't be a name, it's a title. So what does that title mean? Well, the word Satan means accuser or adversary. And so when we put the word the in front of it, it means the accuser or the adversary. So it's actually a title of Satan's, not so much his name. But we're used to calling him Satan. So for the rest of the sermon, if I do use the word Satan, you know who I'm talking about. And we all know that. It's a title rather than a name. But we'll use the word because it's familiar to us. But the question is, who actually is Satan? Where did he come from? If you ask most people who haven't read the Bible, a lot of people will have this idea that God made Satan or he made the devil. That, yeah, we're going to get there. They have this idea that God, from the very beginning, created some being who was evil, created some sort of person to be his kind of enemy or villain or antagonist to. But when we actually read in the pages of Scripture, we find that's not the case. We find, as Chuck said, that Satan was originally an angel. In fact, he was called a cherub. And the cherub were these special angels that surrounded the throne of God. That's about as close as you can get to the very presence of God. They, they were these angels that looked after God and sat around his throne. So Lucifer is one of these cherubs. He's one of these angels who is intimately close with God. But somewhere along the way, he has a fall. Let's have a look in Isaiah chapter 14, and we'll begin in verse 12. So Isaiah is about in the middle of the Bible just after Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Isaiah 14. So if Psalms is in the middle of your Bible, so split there, and Isaiah will be just a little bit after you get past the book of Psalms. So Isaiah 14 and verse 12 begins with this. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, Son of the morning. So here we actually find and discover the name of this cherubim, Lucifer, which means the day star or day star. So it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Here we get to see why is it that Lucifer, this angel, this cherub, who is in the very presence of God, decides to rebel against his maker. We're going to find out in verse 13. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation and on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to the grave, to the lowest depths of the pit. So here we have Lucifer, this angel who is in the very presence of God. And what a privilege that would have been to be around the throne of God. And yet for Lucifer, it isn't enough. He wants even more than all the privileges and blessings that God has already given to him. And so it says that he says in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God here being a reference to the angels. So he says, I'm going to be above all of the other angels. But then he keeps going. I'm going to sit on the mount of the congregation. So this is where God and his innermost uh, beings congregate. I'm going to be there in the very presence of God. Okay. But I will also above, I will send above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So it's not just enough for him to be above all other angels and all other created beings. He wants to sit in the very place where God is. Lucifer is this cherub guarding the throne of God. He's not content just watching God on the throne. He wants to be on the throne himself. And in effect, what is uh, is Lucifer saying here about God? He more or less wants to be God. He wants to be God and he's in effect saying that God does not deserve that throne, that he instead is worthy of that throne. God is not worthy of worship and praise. He's not worthy of giving our adoration to. God should be deposed from his throne. And Lucifer says he is more qualified to sit on the throne of God. Now, that's quite a a big claim for a created being to make. Lucifer would not have even existed if God had not first created him. And yet here is Lucifer saying that I'm going to be above all other beings. So here we have the very first fall of Satan. Satan rebels against God and God throws him out of heaven. Now, interestingly, God doesn't do this straight away. It's not as though God suddenly feels threatened and he just throws Satan out. God actually... He, de- he really tries hard and he waits and he's patient with Lucifer and he gives Lucifer time to actually turn away from his actions. God actually allows Lucifer time to repent if he wants to. So Lucifer's already sinned and yet God was actually willing to forgive Lucifer initially. But Lucifer denies this opportunity and in fact he persuades a third of the angels to rebel against him with God. So this isn't, Lucifer is no longer someone who's just misconceived. He's not someone who's innocently fallen into this trap. He has malicious intent. He's actively working against God and trying to bring as many people down with him as possible. And so after a long time of God trying to wrestle with Lucifer and get him to repent and realize the error of his ways, Lucifer says he's not going to repent and God is forced to expel him from heaven. But of course, Satan isn't content with just being kicked out of heaven. His desire was to have a throne. And so a throne Satan will have. God, he creates the earth. And very interestingly, he creates Adam and Eve and he gives them dominion and authority 
over the earth. He tells them, look after it, be stewards over this earth. And Adam, interestingly, is called the son of God. And it's a term to indicate a representative who works for God. So effectively, God has given rulership to Adam and Eve. And of course, Satan immediately, this character who's looking for his own throne, his own glory, he tries to steal away that dominion and authority given to humans. So of course, we know the story, the serpent, he comes into the garden, he tempts Eve, he makes Adam and Eve fall into sin. And when Adam and Eve do that, they in effect get, get this authority that was given to them and they hand it over to Satan. They, they abdicate, they uh, get rid of their rulership of the earth and they say to Satan, well, you can have it. And that is effectively what sin did. Sin transferred the authority of this planet from humanity over to Satan. So Satan, he kind of gets what he wanted. He wanted a throne, he wanted dominion, he wanted authority, and he stole it from humanity. Now, here's an interesting question. Satan was expelled from heaven, but was he ever allowed to go back? He was. Let's have a look in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, that title, Son of God, who else did we say had that title originally? Adam. So Adam is called the Son of God. So here we said the Son of God is a title for someone who represents God. They're a steward for God. They look after something for God. So Adam was originally called the Son of God. So in effect, Adam should have been at one of these meetings. But notice who decides to show up. When all of these representatives who work for God, these sons of God appear, in comes Satan and says, well, I'm going to appear here as well. Let's continue reading. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So God's effectively asking Satan, well, all right, I've got all my representatives here, my stewards. Who are you? You know, what are you looking after? God knew already. So Satan answered the Lord and said, well, I've been going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. So Satan lays claim to the earth. He says, I'm the one who rules this earth. Adam and Eve, they gave over their rulership to me. I'm the one who runs it now. I'm the authority of this earth. And so I'm the representative. I'm the one who shows up. Yeah, but all along he's been lying. Well, in effect, he, he does, right, not rightfully, but he has taken that rulership from humanity. So notice Satan was still allowed temporary access into heaven, even after he'd been expelled. Now, we only have one instance here, but it's no stretch to imagine that such a meeting between the sons of God would have happened more than once. And so Satan may have appeared in heaven multiple times. We're unclear, but we know at least once that he did. And therefore, Satan still had temporary access into heaven. God would not let him live there. It could not be his permanent place to live. It couldn't be his abode. But it was a, he was allowed temporary access at times, which is very fascinating. It's probably a detail we don't think about too much. Now, at the end of the book of Job, we know that Satan attacks Job, right? 
at the very end of the book of Job, God shows to Job two beasts, the behemoth and the leviathan. And just remember the leviathan. Keep that in the back of your head. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 12 momentarily. Revelation chapter 12. We're going to see the second fall of Satan. Satan's fallen once, but we're going to see that he falls a second time again. And in fact, the Bible over and over again continues to show us that throughout history, Satan just keeps losing and losing and losing. And God and his people keep winning, winning, winning. And the way that the biblical authors show this is that Satan just keeps falling, falling, falling. Revelation chapter 12, we're going to read verse 7. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them, that's the dragon, in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So let's begin in verse 7. War breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and his angels. Now, Michael here is a, another name used for that of Jesus. It's not saying that Jesus is an angel, but it's another name given to Jesus. Jesus had many names and titles, and Michael is one such. So here we have Jesus and his uh, angels fighting against the dragon, who we found out is the serpent, Satan, the devil, and his angels. Now, interestingly, let's go through each of these titles given to Satan in verse 9. First of all, he's called the great dragon. Now, that, that word dragon in the Old Testament is used to represent sea monsters or sea dragons. So these, they're monsters that live in the depths of the ocean. It's that word dragon. That's what it's used for. Now, where have we come across this idea of a dragon or a, a monster that lives in the ocean before? The Leviathan. In the Old Testament, the Leviathan was this beast, this monster of some sort that lived in the depths of the ocean. And remember, in the book of Job, what does God show Job at the very end of his story? The behemoth and the Leviathan, this, this beast from the sea. Now, what's the relevance of God showing Job this Leviathan? Well, it makes sense if, as we read here in Revelation, this sea beast, this, this dragon, this Leviathan, is representative of Satan. So in the book of Job, God tells Job, look, I've, I made the Leviathan and I can control it. You don't have to worry about the Leviathan or worry about Satan. And in fact... In Isaiah 27.1, I'll just read this out for you. Stay in Revelation. Isaiah 27.1, Isaiah says something very fascinating. He says, in that day, so this is the judgment day. So on the day of judgment, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan. God's going to punish the Leviathan beast. He will punish Leviathan, that fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, if Leviathan was merely just 
an animal. That doesn't make too much sense. Like on the day of judgment, God will judge the dog. Okay, why is God judging a dog? God will judge the dolphin. Doesn't make much sense. But if the Leviathan, we assume that Leviathan was probably some, there was probably some natural, um, real beast that looked quite like that. But if it's also used as a symbol for Satan, well, that makes more sense now, that God is going to one day judge Satan. And notice the Leviathan is called a serpent twice. And we have this imagery of Satan. He's the serpent in the garden. In Revelation 12, he's a serpent. So God's going to judge the Leviathan, or he's going to judge Satan. So back in Revelation, he's called the great dragon or the Leviathan, that serpent of old, the serpent in Genesis that tempts Eve. He's called the devil. The devil means the slanderer. It's very similar to that word, the accuser, and he's called Satan. That's a long list of names and titles for this Satan. So he's called a Leviathan. He's called a serpent. He's called the slanderer. He's called the accuser. And he's called the one who deceives the whole world. And yet, he's cast out from heaven. He doesn't win. And when does this take place? This is a description of what took place after the crucifixion. When Jesus died on the cross, he took back that rulership away from Satan. Jesus on earth went by many titles and many different names. But one of the ones that is most interesting is that Jesus was also called the Son of God. And we said the Son of God is a ruler. It's a, it's a steward, someone who looks after the earth. So here comes Jesus, who has this title of the Son of God. And when he dies on the cross, really the cross is almost the coronation ceremony of Jesus as king. Think about it. He has a crown of thorns on his head. Above him is a sign that reads King of the Jews. And as he was led up to the cross to mock Jesus, they put royal uh, uh, cloth of royal colors onto him. This was really the enthronement of Jesus, this crucifixion scene. And the enthronement is him becoming the king of the earth. When Jesus died on the cross, he became the new representative for humanity. He became the new son of God. And so, in effect, that meant that Satan no longer held that title. Satan could no longer claim authority over this earth. Jesus took back that title. And now he is the new representative for humanity. He's the new son of God. But, of course, Satan isn't going to let that go. He's not going to let go without a fight. And so, Revelation 12, what we've read, is Satan trying to battle against Jesus to keep this ownership. But he does not prevail. Let's see. Why is it? How is it that Satan and his angels are defeated? Revelation 12 and verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren, that's Satan, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. How did they defeat Satan, though? Verse 11. They, that is the saints, they overcame overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. 
So how was the defeat of Satan achieved? It had to be through the blood of the Lamb. It had to be through the crucifixion. The crucifixion is what allowed Jesus to take back authority of the earth and rip it away from Satan. And now Satan has not just been demoted, but we're told that he is no longer allowed entry into heaven. He was allowed it for a time because he was... He usurped that role of representative of the earth, but no longer. Jesus has taken back that mantle. Satan has no right to enter heaven anymore. Now, verse 12 finishes up for us. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great anger, because he knows he has a short time. So in effect, what the verse is saying here is Satan is no longer allowed entry into heaven. So that's a good news for heaven. But it's, it's a bit worrying for those on the earth because Satan is now down here full time. And he is trying to get as many people and drag them down into judgment with him. He's angry and he knows that his time is short. So he's trying to cause as much damage in as little time as possible. And so... There is a a good reminder that we need to be, as uh, Peter says, sober and vigilant. The devil is prowling around like a lion, seeking who he he may devour. Now, of course, if we are with God, God is much stronger than what the devil can do. But we still have to be sober and vigilant, not afraid. uh, We're to have a, a spirit of courage and not of fear. We are to be vigilant and watchful still. So, what are the final two downfalls of Satan? We have two to go, and they're both in Revelation. This is in Revelation chapter 20 now. Revelation chapter 20, and we'll begin in verse 1. So Satan, he's been cast down twice now. He keeps falling and falling, falling. But he's going to keep falling even more. Satan's trying to cause as much damage as he can before Jesus arrives. But when Jesus does come at the second coming and he takes his righteous people to be with him in heaven and those who are left behind, there's a destruction of the wicked left behind here. The earth is laid desolate. There's nothing left. There's no human people on the earth anymore. The only people left on this earth are Satan and his demons. And we read about what happens to them. Revelation 20 verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, and he had a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Listen to this. Satan's going to do another fall. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished but after these things he must be released for a little while so here satan is locked up for a thousand years he's imprisoned on this earth for a thousand years the only problem being there's no there's no people left on it so as it says he can no longer deceive the nations There's no one to tempt, there's no one to deceive, there's no one to trick, there's no one here. 
but Satan is imprisoned on this barren earth that is left behind. And he's left there for a thousand years. And that imagery again is that he's cast down into this abyss. So his third fall is cast into the abyss. And this is basically Satan. He's being held until his final judgment. This is his prison while he awaits it. He's effectively in death row here. He's waiting and being imprisoned here until the final judgment. And, you know, you think a thousand years, that'd be a long time to think about all the the wrong things that you've done and perhaps the mistakes you've made. You know, it's a lot of time for self-reflection. And yet Satan does not, by the end of those thousand years, Satan still has no regrets. He still has no problem with any of the actions that he's done. And in fact, when those thousand years are up, he's going to just keep trying and do the exact same thing of attacking God. Revelation 20 and verse 7. Let's read what happens after these thousand years are finished. Satan's been imprisoned for a thousand years. What's going to happen to him next? Verse 7 in Revelation 20. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. Look at that. He's let out after a thousand years and he goes immediately back to the very thing he was doing right before. He has no regrets. He has had no change of heart at all. He just goes straight back to what he was doing before he was imprisoned, trying to deceive as many people as he can. He goes out to the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together to the battle, whose number is, at the, is as the sand of the sea. So Satan gathers up an army to go up against God. That, that brings similar imagery to what we read in Revelation 12, when Satan knew he was going to get thrown down from this position of rulership. He gets his angels together and he tries to fight against uh, Jesus and his angels. And we're just having a repeat here. Satan knows what's coming, so he's trying to fight against it again. So Satan gets this army together and says, They went up onto the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints, that's God's people, and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And here's the, here's the satisfying part in verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So finally, Satan is cast down one more time. And where is he cast into? The lake of fire. This is his fourth and final cast into... The final fall of Satan. Finally, after 6,000 years of suffering and pain and sin and death caused by Satan, he's finally held accountable for his crimes. He's finally gotten rid of. And um, I should briefly comment on the, the last part of that verse, tormented day and night forever and ever. The, the language used here of forever and ever is the same language used in the book of Jude. Jude talks about the judgment as well, and he says that the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah was a fire that lasted forever and ever. Now, we know Sodom and Gomorrah are still not 
on fire today. We're using hyperbolic or exaggerated language here to indicate the intensity and as well the consequence of this fire lasts forever. That is when Satan is finally destroyed. When Satan is finally destroyed, the consequence will be forever. Satan is finally gotten rid of. So there's a final destruction of Satan. And there must be a final destruction to Satan. Otherwise, if God allows sin to continue, well, he hasn't actually gotten rid of the sin problem. God is ultimately wanting to get rid of sin from this universe. And if Satan continues to be burnt on forever and ever and ever, well, he hasn't actually dealt with the problem. Satan and all of the wicked still exist. And so this language here refers to the consequence of this fire is permanent. It lasts forever. And that's why we read uh, that this judgment is called the second death. It results in a final death. The judgment is death. As we read, the wages of sin is death. So here we have the final end of Satan. And isn't it interesting that all throughout the Bible, God is trying to tell us something that Satan loses. From the very first time he started to rebel, all that's been happening to Satan is he keeps falling and falling and falling. He keeps losing, losing, losing. And all throughout salvation history, God keeps winning. Satan is expelled from heaven when he first rebels. Then at the crucifixion, he's permanently expelled. He's no longer allowed any access and he loses that authority over the earth. Jesus redeems it. Then after the second coming, he's thrown down into the abyss where he's locked for a thousand years. And after that thousand years, he just goes back to right where he started, right the same old tricks he does. And God puts a final end to Satan. It's final, it's permanent, Satan is gotten rid of forever. And that will be the greatest day in history, won't it? When finally, finally, we're away from this world full of sin. Finally, evil is defeated. Suffering is no more. Death is eliminated. Justice is finally served. And so I want to encourage you, often... We can be very fearful of Satan and his powers. But when I read the overwhelming evidence in Scripture, the, the Bible is trying to tell us that Satan is, just keeps losing. And we shouldn't be too afraid of, a, of an enemy who continues to lose and lose and lose. Now, as I said, we have to balance that with being sober and vigilant as well. We're not just airy-fairy and we don't pretend as though Satan is not a threat at all. That will just... That's just putting ourselves in a silver platter to Satan. We need to be aware that he and his, his demons, they will try and tempt us. They will try and ensnare us. But if we have the Holy Spirit in us, we'll have the wisdom and discernment to know and spot those traps. If God is going with us, we should be in a place where we won't be trapped. And I'll say as well, if we remain in the church body, we minimize that risk as well. The church body is not just for, um, for worship. It's not just for all of these things. It also helps keep us connected. It helps keep us safe. Because when we're in the church body, if I have a question about something or if I'm struggling with something, I can go to any one of you and ask for help. 
If I feel that Satan is tempting me, I can go up to Peter, I can go up to Lily, go up to anyone and ask for help on that journey. Or maybe I've come across something and it's, it's causing me to doubt my faith and I don't know how to wrestle with it. I can ask Barry. I can ask Jasmine. The church is here as a safeguard to keep its people safe, keeps us safe from Satan and his snares. And so if we're in the church, we also minimize that risk of Satan being able to get in and try and deceive us. Satan is a threat and we should be watchful for his temptations, but we should not be fearful of him. If we have a spirit of fear against Satan, we're going to be immobilized. We're not going to be brave enough to go and do anything. And again, why do we need to fear an enemy that has already been defeated and we know for certain will just continue to be defeated again and again and again? Even death. Death is one of the tools that Satan uses. Death, by death, he, he claims those who did not accept Christ. But in Revelation 20, in that passage, we even read that death itself is ultimately defeated on that day of judgment. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So we don't even have to worry about death. Death is going to be defeated one day. And when we die, we have the hope of the resurrection and of eternal life. So we don't even need to fear death. My final challenge this morning is, we all know that Satan has been defeated and he will be defeated again. But what about the people outside of this church community? Do they know that good news that Jesus has won victory for his people and that Satan has been defeated? The, the kind of grim reality is for those who don't know that good news, they will be joining Satan in that lake of fire on that judgment day. And it's sometimes sobering to think about, but that's really where our ultimate destination should be. As we said, the wages of sin is death. Every person who's committed sin deserves that punishment and deserves to be there in that lake of fire with Satan. And yet Jesus makes a way for us to not have to meet that fate. Satan is trying to bring down as many people into that lake with him. He knows he's going down. The, the trajectory for him for the past thousand years has just been down. He's trying to bring as many people down with him as possible. So what is the role of the church? Not just to keep safe those in it, but to bring more people into that congregation. That really is the mission of the church. The church is a place to worship. It's a place for us to grow in our, uh, our knowledge and our relationship with God. It's a place to have fellowship with one another, but it's also a place for us to learn how we can bring people into the church. We don't want any of those that we love to be with Satan on that day of judgment. We want them to be with us in that beloved city in the new Jerusalem. Canamble needs to know that sin, Satan and death have already been defeated. And that through the cross of Jesus, eternal life can be had by anyone. So my challenge to you is this. Who do we share this news to? Take a moment to think in just your personal life, those around you, friends, family, work colleagues, 
anyone here that you know in Canamble that needs to hear this news, that God has won the victory? Well, um, what's that? It's actually family, but that's uh, yeah, most of my family full of non-believers. That's right, and so we have to find a way to reach out to them. And again, that's, what the, that's the benefit of the church community. We might not know the best way to reach out to those close to us. That's where we can ask others for ideas. What's the best way, do you think, to share the gospel with this person that I love? I want to be in heaven with this person one day. Can you help me find the best way to do it? So I hope that in your mind you've got some faces, some names of people that you know need to hear this good news. And I hope that you'll feel convicted to share that with them. Um, If you're not sure how to go about talking to them or how to approach the subject, come talk to me afterwards. I'm more than happy to talk with you and find a way that we can get that person here. Uh, An easy way, of course, is invite them to come to our beautiful Sabbath mornings here. They can hear about... Well, Well, we have to keep trying. And we can't give up on these people. Um, We can't give up on them. Jesus didn't give up on us. We can't give up on these people.